that's happening, open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and one of our volunteers will get one to you. And uh, you will need that text this morning. Let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to hop around chapters 9 and 10 this morning um, because there's one big idea that Jesus is trying to drive home in these two chapters that we really need to see. Um, But don't worry, we'll be coming back to the passages that we skip over today um, in a message later this month. Um, But we're going to work with chapters 9 and 10, okay? Now, let me tell you about these before we get into them. Uh, This is a passage where you are going to feel Jesus' passion for what he's talking about. He is very passionate about what he's saying. And his language uh, is going to get a bit spicy, if you know what that means, okay? You're going to see it immediately right here in the opening verse. So we're in chapter 9, verse 42. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, or other translations say to stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let's just stop there. So I told you, a bit spicy. He's very passionate about what he's trying to get across here. Jesus is saying that it would be better for you to drown in the ocean, for you to be thrown over, uh, overboard, than for you to cause a new believer to sin or to stumble. Okay. Now, next verse, he's going to get into the main idea that he's driving here uh, that we'll look at this morning. So look with me um, at verse 43. Let me go ahead and kind of tell you what it is, and then we'll read it together. What he's talking about is how important it is for someone to receive and to enter into the kingdom of God. How to receive and enter into the kingdom of God. That it's massively important and crucial. And you're going to see that with the language he uses. Now let me give you a warning before you look at it. Jesus is going to use some very graphic and some very hyperbolic language here. That's key. It's hyperbolic. Can someone define hyperbolic? Do you know what that means? You don't have to say it out loud, but I hope you do. All right, You're going to see it here. It's going to be very obvious that this is hyperbolic language, yet he's trying to drive a deeper point uh, below the surface. So let's look at it. Verse 43, Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Let's stop there. What is Jesus saying here? I think it's pretty obvious. He's saying anything in your life that prevents you from entering into the kingdom of God, cut it off. Get rid of it. Remove it. Cut it out of your life. He's saying any idol or any relationship or any sin pattern or any unbelief that prevents a person from coming to initial faith in Christ, get rid of it. That's what he's saying in those very spicy verses. All right, And those of us who are believers in this room on this side of already entering into God's kingdom and experiencing this salvation, would we not agree? Anything that prevents you 
from coming to faith in Christ. Yes, it's worth cutting out anything and everything to receive life in God's kingdom, period. Now, look at how Jesus talks about this whole idea in the positive. I want you to turn with me. That's the negative, if you didn't catch that. Let's, let's go to the positive. Go to, go to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Same idea that entering the kingdom of God is the most important thing in a person's life. And he's going to give the positive angle on that idea. Let's look at chapter 13, picking up in verse 44. It reads, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He goes on again. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of God. Enter it. Find it. No matter what Jesus is saying. Go back with me to Mark's gospel. Chapter 9. What we're going to find is that Jesus is making an even bigger statement here in this passage. What he's saying is that the most important thing for a human person is to make sure by any and all means necessary that they enter his kingdom. That's it. That's priority number one in Jesus' mind. And wouldn't we all agree with that as well? There's nothing that we want more or find more crucial if you're a parent than your children entering God's kingdom as true believers. I mean, that's priority number one, right? And let me just say this. We want for our children to have a good education. We want them to have good health. We pray for these things. We want them to find a good believing spouse. We want them to get a good job. We want all those things. We pray for those things, and we should. But I'd make this bet. I'd bet my bank account that any true believing parent in the room this morning would painfully exchange All of that if it meant that the one thing necessary for their child happened. They entered the kingdom of God forever. Amen? Amen? Am I just making that up? It's true. And so if that's true, that entering God's kingdom is the most important thing in a person's life, why does Jesus say in the next passage I'm going to show you that it's impossible? That it's impossible impossible for a human to enter God's kingdom. Let's take a look. Flip over to chapter 10 of Mark's gospel. We're going to pick up in verse 17. This is a very important classic interaction that Jesus has with a young man who has done well in life and has some wealth. And you're going to see Jesus driving home this point once again. Let's read it. Verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. uh, Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, All these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to the man, You lack one thing. 
Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's stop there. So you get the interaction. What's happening? Well, Jesus is like a master surgeon. He finds the one thing that still needs to be cut out of his life so that he can receive and enter God's kingdom. We just read that in chapter 9. He says, cut out anything that's going to keep you from entering into faith in me and following me. And so Jesus is just the master of the mind and heart. He says, this is the one thing. This is the one idol, the, the, the one God that you have above me. You have to get rid of that so that you can actually enter God's kingdom. This was the one thing that this man still worshipped more than God himself. Jesus goes on. Look at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Amazed. I think we should be. He's saying it's so difficult for someone, look at the language, who has wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now I want to pause here and I want to ask this. Does Jesus have something against money? Or against people who've made a lot of money or against business at large? I think the answer really clear from scripture is no. As long as that money does not become an idol in that person's life. As long as that money does not take the place of God being their sense of security and ultimate happiness. See, this is where the church historically, not all the church, but some of the church has developed some very unbiblical ideas about God and money. So I want to take a moment and I want to talk about that. Is that okay with you? God and money. Here's what I want to do. I want to knock down some of those misconceptions one at a time. There's five of them that I just want to knock down according to scripture. Okay. Number one, Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions and give to the poor. He just didn't. The ones that he saw, it would prevent them from entering the kingdom of God. He said, cut it out. Cut it out. Go sell it all. You all treasure in heaven. That's what the verse says. Come follow me. But that was not the case for every single person that he called to follow him. Actually, that was more of a rarity. Second thing, some of his disciples retained both their homes and their boats. They were fishermen. They retained their homes and their boats. Peter retained his home. Most scholars believe Peter was married. Some scholars believe Peter had children. And they constantly go back to Peter's house. That was kind of HQ. That was home base for them, right? And they would go back there. And then they retained their boats. And I've got verses on the... Oh, oh wow. Amen. That, how long has that been there? A little while? There you go. So we see some of these verses that, that are, you know, where I'm pulling uh, this information. Let's go to the third one. Joseph Arimathea was a wealthy man who followed Jesus and provided the Lord's tomb right at the end of his death, right? Number four, this is really important. There were wealthy and prominent women who supported Jesus's ministry financially. So much so that if they weren't there, if God couldn't use their finances, Jesus' ministry would have been seriously hamstrung to get off the ground. Fifth and final one. The early church had wealthy members who both gave generously and retained their wealth and their homes. You see that in the book of Acts. 
Now, here's the reality. I'm just going to shoot you straight. A lot of ill-informed people read the book of Acts, and they conclude that the early church was some kind of communistic commune, okay? Like a Marxist hippie enclave or something, okay? They read that, and they say, well, they were all together. They had all things in common. They were selling all their things to the poor. And yet later in chapter 5, you see clearly they didn't sell everything they had to the poor. They sold the things that they felt God was calling them to, but they retained a lot of what... They had. Jesus is not calling us all of us to be homeless. He is calling all of us to be generous and to steward our finances and not to make them into an idol. The real issue for the Bible is this. There's a verse in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. It just cuts to the chase. It says this. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say that money is a root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money. It goes on, it is through this craving, it's going to give you a warning though. So if you think you're off the hook for having to steward your finances in a kingdom way, you're wrong. Because it gives a warning, it is through this craving, the love of money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Graphic language. Some of you might know friends or family that's like that. They used to walk with Jesus. They had passion for the Lord. They were in the scriptures. They loved their church. They served their church. They gave to their church. But their career took off or something happened and they became so infatuated with making money and retirement and all these things that they just slowly began to wander from what it says. It says the faith. Let's sum up. Having money and giving generously to the Lord's church is, is not the issue. The issue is the love of money into a false God. That's the issue. Do we understand the difference in the two? Was I clear enough? Or if I wasn't, just come talk to me. Let's go on. Back here, Jesus is now talking to the disciples, right? He's just said these pretty um, shocking things to this young man with wealth. He said in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Let's pick up in verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Stop there. We need to understand as Jesus is talking about all people here, right? Whether your idol is your wealth, whether it's a relationship, whether it's your intellectual pride, sexual ideology, doesn't matter. He's talking about those idols. And he's going to use an example to drive home his point by referring back to the wealthy person, but applies to all people here. It's really important to get. You'll see that as the passage goes on. And as we go on, remember this, the main point that he's trying to drive home is that it's both necessary to enter the kingdom of God. At the same time, it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God. Let's look closer at verse 25. Look at, the, uh, look at what he uses here. I'm looking for something. Okay, I'll find that. Look at verse 25. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Remember... He's using the rich as the example, but it really does apply to everyone. It's easier for a camel. Do we have a camel? There's a camel. Anyone ever ridden a camel? Just raise your hand. 
Oh, all right, there you go. A few people. They spit at you. They're nasty creatures if you've never been around them. I was going to get on one in, um, in Israel, but then I didn't. I had a needle up here. Well, Jesus was right. It's pretty small. Come here, needle. All right. You need me to move on. Darn. Everyone seen a needle? Yes, you have. All right. There we go. Yeah. Case in point. Here's the deal. I used to read this and think it was an analogy, a metaphor that Jesus was employing here. But it's not. Bible scholars will tell you that this is not a metaphor or analogy. He is serious about it. He is being literal about it. Just imagine I was holding up a needle. He is being serious about the fact that it's that, that as difficult as it is, or no, let's say it this way. It's easier for that camel to enter through the tiny little hole of a needle, right? Than it is, he says, for a rich person, again, any person, to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for that camel. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, it's impossible. It's impossible for a person to enter the kingdom of God. Did you know that the camel is the largest land animal in Israel? Watch the disciples' response. If you hear him say that, you're going to have a response. Verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved, Jesus? If it's easier for the camel to go through the needle, then who can be saved? It's the right question to ask. And notice that the disciples, they broaden the issue out to everybody, not just people with money. They say, then who? Can anyone? Who, who can be saved? Right? They're asking, say it another way, can anyone be saved? Can anyone enter the kingdom and inherit eternal life? Look at Jesus' answer. Jesus looked at them, verse 27, and said, With man, it is impossible. I'm going to say that again. With man, it is impossible. Jesus' blunt answer to their question, who then can be saved, is simply no one. It's impossible. What is Jesus doing here? He's flattening humanity across the board. And effectively saying, it doesn't matter how wealthy or how middle class or how poor you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how moral or immoral you are. It doesn't matter how spiritual or non-spiritual you are. It doesn't matter how much you think you're a good person or you think you're not a good person. No one on their own can be saved is what he's saying. I'll put it in a sentence. No one can simply enter the kingdom of God because they want to. Jesus says it's impossible. Do not skip over that one fact. It's massively important. What does it mean? When you zoom out of the Bible and see what the New Testament has to say about us as human beings who are not in God's kingdom, it means this. It means that every person you look at on a normal day, your spouse or your roommates, your coworkers, your classmates, it means that they are totally helpless to do anything to save themselves from their impending death, from sin's mastery over them, from the devil's schemes against them, and from God's judgment upon them. Helpless is the language of the Bible. The Bible says that the grave swallows up everyone in the end. 
grave swallows up everyone in the end. Every person you come in contact with is in some deep sense helpless. They will die. So much of the philosophy that's ever been written is about death, solving the problem of death. So much of the podcast, if you really get underneath what it's about, is about how to escape death. So much of the new you know, technology, I mean, you, there's some crazy stuff coming out, is about how to escape death. Some of the cream that is sold is about how to not get older and older. Death frightens all of us, and it should. Because the grave swallows up everyone in the end. We are but creatures, as the Bible says in Genesis. We are made from the dust, and to the dust we will return. So if according to the mind of Christ and the mind of the Bible, humanity cannot help themselves, the question we have to ask is who can? Who can? And the reality is only God. Only God can lovingly do for humanity what we cannot do for ourselves. What does Jesus say in the verse? Verse 27. I only read the first part. He says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. This means that entrance into God's kingdom is not something that humanity can achieve, but rather it is a gift. It is a gift that we receive. It's really important in the mind of Scripture. Eternal life, salvation, entrance into the kingdom, use any term you like, it is a gift bestowed on the human creature from God. It's the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive. Now, let me change lanes here. I'm going to put my blinker on. I just told you I'm doing it. Let me say this. Is it not true that we as humans are helpless? I'm going to give you three characteristics. Helpless, needy, and dependent. Helpless, needy, and dependent. Any young, young parents in the room, does that remind you of anything? Helpless, needy, and dependent. Does it remind you of what? Of children. Children can't do anything on their own, right? So we have Judd as our, uh, about to be two, he's two on St. Patrick's Day, so he's our youngest, and uh, we keep saying he's the last Raymond. I think uh, it's the Lord's will, we are done. As a family, we have three, and we're very happy. Um, so Judd's about two. I love Judd. He's, the, he's incredibly fun, okay? But Judd can't do anything on his own, right? I was thinking about this. Is there anything Judd can do on his own? He can't eat on his own, we have to feed him. He can't even go to the bathroom on his own because we've got to clean it up. Like, there's nothing. He can't go to sleep on his own. We've got to stay in the room until he falls asleep, right? And we do this happily, not always with the greatest attitude, at least for me, but we do this, right? He's totally needy, dependent, and helpless, just like we are as children. Now, that being true about children and about us as human beings before God, this just might be why Jesus' favorite example to use when he talks about entering the kingdom of God is children. It's right there earlier in the chapter. Can I show it to you? Go to right there, verse 13. Jesus is constantly having a child come and stand before adults and making points about the kingdom of God about children because we're just like them. But we get older and we get prideful and we think we're independent. Verse 13. 
And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Then he makes a point. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Other gospels will say the language of if you do not become or even the word, it's the same word as convert. If you don't convert and become like a child, it says you cannot enter God's kingdom, God's salvation. What's the point? Jesus saying you have to actively humble yourself like a needy child before God. You have to realize deep in your bones that you cannot achieve entrance into the kingdom just because you want to. doesn't matter how spiritual or how moral you are. There's all kinds of unbiblical ideas that if you're just a good person, you'll one day go to heaven. And friends, I know a lot of us in the church who are, you know, scripturally literate think that we don't believe that anymore. But sometimes we act like we do. Jesus is saying it's impossible to enter the kingdom without God's help. And God's intervention. And we have to become like children and acknowledge that. That your only hope is the grace of God. That's the key word. Grace of God. God, the father of all humanity, has to give a gift to humanity. Let me apply this to your life. You are here today as a believing person. Because God gave you a gift. A gift. Isn't that something to think about? Somewhere in your history, God's grace was poured out in your direction and he gave you the gift of humbling yourself and believing in Christ, our Lord and Savior, to enter into his kingdom. I've been thinking about this this week. So for me, I was about 18 when God's grace met me in a profound way. And many of you have heard the story, and I don't have to go into it, but I mean, I, I was one of those who, my, my brother will tell you, I mean, we were at Parkview High School together, I was one of those easily categorized as really far from the kingdom of God. Did not care about godly things. And uh, I remember about six months um, before I turned 18, I started having this interest in the Bible. I started having this interest in godly things. It came out of nowhere in many ways. God's grace was beginning to draw me in to his kingdom. And everyone's story here is different. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you didn't. Maybe it was a dramatic conversion. Maybe it was subtle and over time. But the Bible is clear. What's happening in that moment is God is pouring out his grace to you so that you might turn to him and believe. You're here this morning because God did that for you. Now, can I be honest with you? We tend to limit God's grace. We tend to think that God's grace isn't deep and wide enough to cover the entire world of its sin and rebellion against God. But the reality is, is that God's grace is an infinite ocean, that it's sufficient for anyone that we would be so bold and share Christ with. Do not count anyone out who seems too far from God's kingdom. Don't limit God's endless supply of power and grace in a person's life. And don't think that when you share 
Christ with someone, that you're all alone in doing that. Behind your words, the words of, Paul says, the gospel of grace is this tidal wave of God's spiritual grace for that person to believe. Let me read you some verses. I want you to just meditate on these as we bring this to a close. It's Titus 2.11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. John chapter 1. This is speaking of Jesus And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Two more, 2 Timothy 1. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And lastly, Acts 15, the disciples say, but we believe that we will all be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Let me bring this to a close. God's grace is the most important reality in your life, period. It is done for you and for me things we will never know about. Why did you wake up a Christian this morning? Why did you wake up still believing and having faith in the Lord? Why did you wake up with still a hunger to know God and to walk into his kingdom? Because you're spiritual? No. It's because of God's grace in your life. What is holding all of your atoms and molecules, bones and joints, your brain, your neurons? What's holding all of that together? God's grace. What is holding if you're married, your marriage together? You think you're that good of a person? I got news for you. It is God's grace that allows you to have patience and to love and to sacrifice. God's grace is so present and coloring all aspects of our life. It is the greatest reality and gift that you have and will ever receive. And it's the one thing by which we enter God's kingdom both now and forever. Amen? And so hear this. Remember, and I'm preaching to myself, never to limit God's grace in your life or in someone else's. There is enough of God's grace for your family. Some of you uh, older adults that, that have lived life and you've raised kids. Many of us are on the younger end of life, or some of us are, are, are single, and some of us are students. But speaking to you older parents, you had to have all kinds of grace to raise your children, much less help lead them into the kingdom of God, right? And I think about my children in the future. I think about uh, children that might rebel. I mean, I was one of them that might walk far away from God's kingdom. What you have to remember, and they'll tell you, is don't limit God's grace. There is enough for your family. There's enough for your children. There's enough for your coworkers. There's enough for that person that you really want to see come into God's kingdom. There is more than enough.